So you may recall from the first talk that I did, which was almost a year ago now, that I have a special affinity for the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, just to review, it's a collection of 15 psalms that all bear the same note at the beginning. Uh, in Hebrew, we say, Shir Hama'alot, or the songs of going up. They begin at Psalm 120, and they continue through 134. Most of them don't name an author, but four are ascribed to David and one to Solomon. The common understanding is that these songs were sung on the road to Jerusalem during the, first, during the three pilgrimage festivals, which you'll remember are the Passover, which celebrates the Exodus, the Feast of Weeks, which celebrates the giving of the law, and the Feast of Booths, which celebrates God's uh, provision during the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. These were times when the heads of the households of Israel were meant to go up to Jerusalem and take a sacrifice. Um, so three times a year, they would go to the temple, um, well, first to the tabernacle and then to the temple built by Solomon. In Deuteronomy 16:16, 16, 16, it summarizes the command three times a year. All your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place that he chooses, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And you'll remember that Jerusalem, we talked about the topography last time, it stands on a hill, or rather a gathering of hills, and it's surrounded by um, other taller hills, including the Mount of Olives, which is a common one in the New Testament. But it's also surrounded between those hills in Jerusalem, there are valleys on all sides. So it makes it a very defensible walled city, but it also means that when you go to Jerusalem, you have to go up, even though you came down first. You can't get there without going up which led to the phrase, going up to Jerusalem. You never see in the scripture, they went over to Jerusalem, or they went down to Jerusalem. They always go up, and that's why. So these psalms are songs um, labeled for going up. And as I mentioned last time, some scholars have suggested there may have been a ritual singing of these songs on the 15 steps that lead up into the Temple Mount. So the Temple Mount stands on the east side of Jerusalem, and then there's a deep valley called the Valley of Hinnom, and then the Mount of Olives. So this was a common approach. That It wasn't the only way to get into the temple. It wasn't the only way to get into the city, but a lot of people came over the Mount of Olives. You always are seeing Jesus come over the Mount of Olives and go up into the temple. So that's the spot where there's a gate that goes on to the Temple Mount. It has 15 steps, and the 15 steps are actually still there today, um, including one stone, which they tell us, dates all the way to the time of Christ. So there's, you know, he would come up that staircase when he was coming up after going over the Mount of Olives through the Valley of Hinnom and up into the temple. So that's where um, it is speculated. We don't actually have any proof, but that the Israelite pilgrims would pause and sing on the 15 steps the 15 Psalms of Ascent. They probably also sang them as they walked along because it was a time of walking for travel for the most part. Israel's not that big of a place, about the size of New Jersey, and so it would take definitely weeks, um, or at least days, depending where you're coming from, to walk there, but they probably sang along the way because the songs, these psalms were like Christmas carols. They were part of the feast and the festival. But when they got there, we think that they may have stopped on the steps. Maybe that's why there's 15 steps to sing the psalms and just remind themselves of what they were about. 
So whether they did this individually or corporately, we don't know. We don't really know if they do it, did it at all. But I like the idea, particularly the idea of them stopping out there outside the city. They haven't even arrived in Jerusalem yet. In the dust and the sun, and I can tell you it is both dusty and sunny most of the time, with the dwelling place of God rising above them as a literal fortress and refuge, and singing these 15 hymns all together as a set. In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows, with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as we decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God I will seek your good. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, 
lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blesses the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. 
O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Ja'ar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place, and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. So as I read through these psalms, just like we just have done, um, as a set, uh, I was struck by a persistent similarity that runs through them all. Um, they have different purposes, different messages, they have different poetic forms, but in each one we see the same relative perspective between the psalmist and God. In other words, each psalmist recognizes God is in relation, who God is in relationship to himself and who he is in relationship to God. And since these are intended as corporate songs, this also highlights the relationship of God and his people as a whole. Now, psalms are peculiar in Scripture in that they capture one-way communication from man to God. They are prayers and praises, calls of distress, and celebrations of deliverance. They run the gamut of emotions from dark depression to expansive elation. Reading through them, we see lots of raw, seemingly unfiltered thoughts and emotions. David, in particular, can sometimes leave us thinking, wow, you talk to God like that? But in these 15 songs, we find a unity, and the unity is the perspective. Their subjects vary from deliverance 
to prayers for help, to prayers for peace, delight in relationship with God, delight in the unity of Israel, remembrance of God's faithfulness to his people. But each one approaches God from the same basic position. You could call it reverent humility. The psalmists come to God acknowledging that he is God and understanding that they are not. This may seem pretty basic, but as with uh, many deep truths, I would suggest that the difficulty comes not from the knowing, but from the understanding and application of these facts. I think Psalm 123 captures this quite beautifully, so that's what I want to look at today. So if you want to open to Psalm 123. I'll read it from a literal translation. Um, I'm using a Hebrew-English Bible that just has kind of a word for word. A song of ascents. Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. As we have discussed, the first key to unlocking a psalm is its poetry. These are all, after all, songs, and they rise out of the poetic culture of Hebrew. As such, they work with a set of tools that's somewhat different from Western poetry. We talked about this last time. Much of the Western tradition relies on rhymes, um, patterns of rhymes, patterns of syllables, and accents. We know these forms, and we recognize them when we see them. Likewise, the Hebrew audience reading a Hebrew uh, poem would recognize the forms and structures that would be familiar to them from their culture. Rather than focus on patterns of syllables and accents and rhymes, Hebrew poetry reads more like modern free verse. It deals mainly in imagery, metaphor, simile, and especially various kinds of repetition. If you think about poetry, there's a lot of repetition. Even a rhyme is a repetition of a final sound in the word. So it's, uh, it's the same concept, but it just is a different uh, application of it. Often key words play a large part, um, as well as sometimes elaborate imagery. And there are always very complex interactions between words and thoughts, and even the sounds, not in a rhyming way, but in other ways, the sounds will mimic and echo and, and speak back and forth to each other. The most important thing to look for when you read Hebrew poetry is this interaction. The Hebrew language, and perhaps the Hebrew-speaking mind, is far less linear than English. It doesn't have that strict subject-verb-object form. The words and phrases interplay. They can be switched around and emphasized in different ways. And even um, there's a strong tradition of alluding to well-known works like other scriptures, lines from the Torah, things that everybody would know in the same way that if we said, like, a wretch like me or something, it, everybody knows that that's from Amazing Grace. You know, So the, the, a lot of the poems include those kind of interactions. Parallelism is a common structure in Hebrew literature, and it's based on a kind of evolving repetition of ideas where you state the line, then maybe you state a phrase from the line and add a concept onto it or in some way alter the original uh, meaning, either expanding it or contrasting it, something like that. Um, so keep that in mind as we look at this poem. Watch for the interactions. One element of Hebrew poetry that should be familiar to us because we have the same in Western poetry would be the stanza. 
So if we look at our poem here, we can pretty quickly break it into two main sections. Stanza 1 is verses 1 and 2, um, conveniently enough, and stanza 2 is verses 3 and 4, even though they're different lengths. Some translations will visually break this up. When you look at their, your page, they'll have, a, as though you're reading a book of poetry, they'll have an extra space in between the stanzas. Some of them will bold the letter of the verse that starts a new stanza. Stanza one is a quatrain, which would be four lines, and it's made up of two parallel lines each. Two, yeah, made up of two parallels, two lines each. Uh, then stanza two starts with a transition line, which stands alone, and then it has two lines, which make up another parallel. And here at this stanza level is where we see our first interaction. The two stanzas paint very different pictures, one right and one wrong one using external imagery, the other speaking directly to the internal condition, um, one showing what we strive for while the other calls, out, calls us out for what we often are. Um, and the crux, the turning point, as we'll see, is that cry for mercy in verse 3. So let's look a little more closely at stanza 1. Unto you I lift my eyes, you who dwell in the heavens, Behold, as the eyes of the servant to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maid to the hand of her mistress, so are eyes to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. It's a pleasant enough beginning. The psalmist begins with an image of devotion, and it's made up, as I said, of two parallels. The first and last lines give us the main image. Unto you I lift my eyes, O you who dwell in heaven. Our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. And then the middle two lines are their own a set of similes that parallel one another. Behold, as the, ser- the eyes of the servants to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the maid to the hand of her mistress. You might wonder about that behold. Actually, many of your translations probably don't even have it. Behold, as the eyes of the servant to the hand of their ma- uh, master. Uh, it doesn't seem to fit the form and or the sense of the line, um, but I think it's a mistake to leave it out. It's actually a common word in Psalms. It's a common word in Hebrew. It's used to set something off for special attention, uh, sometimes to mark a transition. In this case, uh, it might be meant to set those two middle lines apart from the first and last line to say these are a separate um, development of the thought. The word in Hebrew is hine. It's an interjection, and it means something between behold, as it's translated here, or as in behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together, which we heard in um, chapter 133, or something more informal, like hey, or look here, or even yo. Basically, pay attention to this part, like hey, let me get your attention. Um, Okay, so you're still wondering, so what? And that's exactly what the translators thought. This doesn't add anything to the meaning of the verse and interrupts the English version of the poetry, so just leave it out. But this is a place where the translation, where the translation loses some of the original genius of the poetry, in my opinion. Remember I told you that sometimes the interactions of sounds are part of the Hebrew poem. And so it is here. If you look back at stanza one, you'll notice that the word eyes appears in every line. The lifting of eyes is the central metaphor. And the word ties the stanzas together into a single unit. So here's the point. In Hebrew, the word for eye is ayin. And when you conjugate it, my eyes, their eyes, 
our eyes, you get ene, ene, enenu. Suddenly the, the poetry of that little hine starts to make a little more sense. In fact, that set of sounds runs straight through the whole poem. When we see our God, it's Eloheinu. When we see have mercy on us in verse 3, it's Hanenu, Yehovah Hanenu. And in verse 4, those who are at ease are Hasananim. Ene, ene, enenu, the word eyes interacts with the rest of the pro- poem through the music of the sounds. It gives you the glimpse of, com- of the complexity of these artworks. The interactions grow deeper and richer the closer you look at the psalms. It also brings us back to the central thought of the psalm. To quote Doug Bookman, I say all that to say this. This, this song, with its central image of the eye, speaks to us about perspective especially as we approach our God. From what vantage point do we view the Creator? Where do we place ourselves in relation to Him in our own thoughts and actions? It's easy to produce the Sunday School answer. Uh, But I want you to push a little deeper in your search for understanding. I believe this question is no less than the most fundamental, the deepest, the most profound question in all of human experience. Everything starts here. Every philosophy, every worldview, every personal ethic and political system begins with the answer to this question. In the depths of your being, where do you place yourself in relationship to God? Are you just a bug on his uncaring windshield? The object of his indifference? Or worse, his open animosity? Are you a part of a clock or some Rube Goldberg machine that he built and set in motion and now he's just sitting back to see how it works out? Is he a little higher than you, or a lot? Maybe just a few rungs up the ladder, so we need only evolve a few more steps to reach his level. Or do you treat yourself as his peer already? Or worse, his judge, discussing his choices, his actions in your life, even the dictates and principles of his word, as though they need to pass your ultimate scrutiny in order to be deemed good with that capital G. So I was talking to a heretic one day. Since then, he's become an apostate, turning away from God altogether. But that day, he was still a heretic. And I use that term in its literal meaning. He was actively adding his own anti-scriptural ideas into the mix of his personal religion, then trying to somehow excuse them, explain away the conflict, and then teach it to other people. Like all heretics, he couldn't wait to try to win me over to his nascent cult of followers. So this is one of our first conversations, and he knows that I'm a Bible-reading believer, and so he starts pushing me toward the gray areas, trying to see if I'll follow him out into the sort of trackless darkness of stuff he just made up and wants to call his faith. So somehow we got onto the subject of hell. Now, I have noticed that the denial of hell is like the gateway drug of heretics, By denying the idea of eternal judgment, they can rob God of his justice. And if God is not just, then quite a lot of the scripture starts to look a little questionable, especially the parts we don't like or have trouble getting our heads around. So once they deny God's justice, they find it pretty easy to deny his omnipotence, especially in the form of his ability to create and preserve the scriptures throughout history. So inerrancy of scripture goes on the scrap heap next. That opens the door for just about any idea they can come up with. 
Some, actually a lot of them, claim a special vision from God, like Joseph Smith and his rose-colored glasses. Others simply start building doctrines out of their own emotions and observations. A few justifications and mental gymnastics later, they find themselves in the position of my friend, evangelizing for a false gospel of their own making. It's a well-established pattern. If you like history, you can look at the founding of our country. How many states were founded by heretics leading their little cults out into the woods to start a new town where no one would make them read the Bible instead of their own uh, dream journal? And if you want an easier source, just listen to This American Life. They love apostates. They never met one they didn't like. So anyway, uh, the heretic is telling me how he just can't imagine the God he loves being capable of creating and sustaining a place like hell. And I'm telling him... That idea can't be supported in the scripture, and it undermines the justice of God and our need for salvation, etc. So finally, he just lays it out, the mental gymnastics. He says, even if I'm wrong, I don't think my Heavenly Father is going to hold it against me if it turns out that I am more gracious and merciful and loving than he is. (laughs) This was his trump card. As far as he was concerned, there could be nothing I could possibly say in response to that. As far as I was concerned at that point, he was already a lost cause, so I didn't. But if I had said what came to mind at that moment, it would have been this. If that turns out to be the case, then maybe you should just take over as God and let him find something else to do. A few years later, he pretty much decided that he is God and went in search of other people that he could convince of that proposition. Fortunately, he hasn't been very successful so far. But the point is that his error began as a problem of perspective. In his mind, the heretic places himself in the seat of judge, presiding over the right of God to be God or even to exist at all. That is why I say that this question lies at the deepest and most foundational level of our faith and understanding of literally everything. It lies at the heart of every sin invented by man or devils. Indeed, was this not the ultimate source of the original sin. First, Lucifer beholds his own great glory, and he was glorious, and begins to consider himself equal to God Almighty. When God casts him down, the angel-turned-devil approaches Eve with the same proposition. He challenges God's position as loving protector and giver of instructions. In essence, he tells the woman, don't listen to God, you be the judge. In Genesis 3.6, we see when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband, and he ate. Satan challenged their perspective. Setting themselves in the place of God, they fell. And we've been doing it ever since. That is why this question is so important. So let's see what the Psalm of Ascent has to tell us about the answer. Stanza 1 lays out the alternative to the path of Adam and Lucifer. Unto you I lift my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. Unto you I lift my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. The the implication is clear. He's up there, I'm down here. And uh, as we discussed the last time I spoke, the nature of God is so above and beyond us that his complete being is literally unimaginable to us. 
But our poet doesn't leave it there. He makes it personal with the next two lines. Behold, as the eyes of servants to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress. These images take the perspective of the poem beyond simple position. We do not simply lift our eyes to God because he dwells in the heavens. We lift our eyes as the servant to the master. That's a relationship, a known and understandable interaction. The master-servant relationship includes expectations on both sides. It may seem simplistic or hackneyed to relate this to the boss-employee relationship, but it's not entirely inappropriate. Under the Levitical law, there were very strict rules about how you could treat an indentured servant, including, among other things, every seventh year they had to be freed and all their debts forgiven. That may not have been what everybody did, but that was what the law said that they should do. That runs more closely to the concept of the employee than what we would think about as slaves, people who for their entire life were going to be owned by another person. It's a slightly different concept in the, in the Hebrew culture. But I have a more vivid picture in mind than a CEO and his accountant when I read this uh, eye-to-hand relationship. When I was a kid, I used to help my dad work on our family cars. He was pretty good at it, but he was also very busy running Christian schools all day long. So most of the car repair happened in the evening, by which I mean late into the wee hours of the morning, most of the time. But even when I was small, he would always let me help. Um, help him work on the cars after school, at least, you know, until dinner time. So my dad would put the car up on jack stands, and he would disappear underneath. But before he disappeared, he would try to think of every tool that he was going to need while he was under there. And he would lay them on the driveway, um, kind of next to his hip, so that when he was underneath the car and needed the next tool, he could just reach down and find it, rather than getting all the way back out to go to the toolbox or groping around because he brought it too far in with him. It was a good system, and it's actually one that I use to this day. So in the beginning, I was completely superfluous to this process. Uh, I was basically watching. And what I was watching was a pair of jeans with boots on the end of them sticking out from under a car. And every once in a while, a hand would appear and put down a tool and grope around to pick up another tool. But pretty soon, and then it would disappear again. But pretty soon, I learned the names of some of the tools. And I would pick those tools up from the pile. You know, I'm six years old. Pick up the tools, one in each hand. And when the hand appeared to put down the tool, I would start shouting, what do you need now? And if the muffled, faceless voice said the name of a tool that I knew, then I would hand it to him. Or rather, I would press it against his hip because it's easier to find it without looking. And you don't have to wave your hand around in the air. So he taught me that one pretty quickly. If I didn't know the name of the tool, the hand would just grope around on the ground and find it, and my dad would, or my dad would emerge and rummage around in the toolbox. When I knew most of the names of the tools, and when he hadn't forgotten to get them out of the toolbox, the system worked pretty well. The hand would appear and put down a wrench, and I would replace it with a screwdriver and pick up the wrench. I was a very sophisticated tool rack. And uh, you've never seen one so efficient. And at the age of seven, that is like the very definition of achievement to actually have the right tool and get it into his hand. Eventually, I'd graduate from tool rack to toolbox rummager and then to tool user and even a few times to co-mechanic. But when I read these verses, I remember that first stage. Squatting or kneeling on the driveway, maybe seven or eight years old, probably wearing totally inappropriate clothing for working on cars. One tool in each hand with all my attention focused on the spot where that hand was going to appear. 
ready to do my darndest at whatever the muffled voice asked. In so many ways, that is a picture of God. Behold as the eyes of the servant to the hand of their master, as the eyes of the organic tool rack to the hand of the father mechanic. It's a relationship, an image of focused attention, expectation, the desire to do what is needed, and each time to do it better, more quickly, to serve well and please the master and improve the work itself. And there's love in that relationship in both directions, and so it is with God. And then, of course, there's the fact that after dinner I went to bed and my dad went on with his original system, which probably worked just fine. <laughs> I, <laughs> I like to think he was happier when the organic tool rack was there on duty, uh, but I would adventure to say that is not unlike God either. Behold as the eyes of the servants to the hand of their masters as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress. So we read that parallel and our first thought is, okay, that's pretty redundant. Like you just said, the servant to the hand of the master. Why do we need to say this maid to the hand of the mistress? Um, but actually there is a point. Uh, in the Hebrew poetic tradition of parallelism, this pattern is well known. Scholars call it gender-matched parallelism, and there are many examples. Most of them, unfortunately, are invisible in English because they rely on the genders of the nouns and verbs themselves, since English is a neutered language, this poetic form vanishes in translation. Fortunately, this one uses words that actually have genders in English, so we can actually see it. And in this case, what we see is two lines. Within each line, the genders match each other. But in the second line, all the genders are the opposite of the first line. Servants, masters, maid, mistress. And this has a very specific meaning, as it turns out. This kind of gender parallelism expresses the wholeness or completeness of the image and a sense of harmony in the image. Matching the genders with each, within each line expresses the order and harmony, including both genders in the parallel expresses wholeness, completeness, even universality. And in essence, everyone is a part of this image. Everyone is a part of this thought. Just as an aside, it struck me that the Old Testament, and by extension, the quote-unquote God of the Old Testament, kind of gets a bad rap in our 21st century as the supposed origin of some kind of paternalistic, patriarchal system of misogyny. But we who study him know that that's not the nature of God. And I won't get too rabbinical on this point, but I find it interesting that here we find God has layered into this ancient culture, which he used to write his scriptures, the idea that a complete image must include both genders. And a harmonious thought must demonstrate order and harmony between them. So much so that if a Hebrew poet wanted to create tension by inverting one of these constructs or corrupting the pattern, then he would use that to express danger, chaos, even destruction. But in our image, we find universality and harmony, supporting this ideal of the perspective we should have when approaching God, to bring us back to the psalm. Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants to the hand of their masters, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. The eyes, these ideas fall in line quite beautifully with the message that Mike gave us last week from Ecclesiastes. We saw Solomon, gifted at a young age with uncommon wisdom. Before long, he received uncommon wealth and power as well. He expanded the borders of the kingdom of Israel 
to rule the widest territory of its entire history, like even up to now, and made it a world power of its own right to rival Egypt and Assyria, who were the like Russia and America of the time in that region. And we saw last week that he pursued every possible avenue of human experience. As a scientist, a hedonist, a philosopher, a monarch. And what did he conclude? Not that nothing matters, as Mike was telling us, but rather that everything matters a little bit. And that one thing matters a lot, from Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12.13. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. In other words, the only thing that matters in the end is your understanding and living out of your proper place in the universe in relationship to its creator. And this is the subject of Psalm 123. Um, And this is not only important to Solomon, the unnamed psalmist, and the unnamed psalmist, who I suppose might also be Solomon. We have copious evidence that is important to God himself, Consider Leviticus 19, 17, and 18, which contains perhaps the most famous and oft-quoted line in all of scriptures. It starts in verse 17. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely repro- reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sins of your people. And here's the famous part. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus later would make it clear that this should apply to all people, not just the countrymen of Israel. In addition to being the most famous line of scripture, though, this may be the most misapplied and misunderstood of all well-known biblical edicts. Taken out of both of its proper contexts in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it has been perverted, diluted, and even adulterated, often by those who openly oppose and reject both the scripture that they're quoting and its author. Love your neighbor as yourself has been twisted to support the nice guy view of God. A system of no judgment, no justice, no hell or consequences of any kind. If there is any God at all, then he's a nice, soft Santa Claus God who, like an indulgent parent, stands by and excuses us no matter what evil we may do. To refute this error, we may... We need look no further than the last phrase of this very verse from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In that final phrase, I am the Lord, we find the key. That phrase demonstrates that God does place a high value on our understanding of his position in relationship to the universe and especially in relationship to us. I heard a Jewish scholar talking on the radio this week And he was making the very correct point that this final phrase, I am the Lord, provides the foundation for the commandments and indeed for all morality whatsoever. The very existence of right and wrong depends on God because he draws the line against which all things may be measured. Without him, without a God, there is no genuine morality at all. There is just culture. There's just tradition or opinion or emotion. As God gives Israel this rule about dealing with each other, he follows it with the reason it must be obeyed. He's invoking his own authority. An authority, as we will see, based on his place and position in relationship to the universe and to us. I don't think the Jewish scholar quite grasped this point because he kept substituting the phrase, I am God, for I am the Lord. He even stopped at one point to say that there's basically no difference between the phrases, but I disagree. 
there's a very important difference. God is citing his own authority as the basis for our obedience. He's offering the foundation for this relationship that we've been talking about. And the words that he chooses affect our understanding of that relationship. He says, I am the Lord. And if you look at it, that's all in capitals. Some of you recall that when Lord is all in caps, it has a very specific meaning. It represents the name of God, which we sometimes pronounce as Yahweh or Jehovah. He does not say, I am Elohim, which would just be, I am God. He doesn't say, I am your God or the God of your fathers, as he sometimes has said in dealing with men. He does not say, I am Adonai, which means Lord or Master, and is actually the word in our psalm, the hand of, the ma- of their Master, that word is Adonai in Psalm 123.2. He doesn't say Father, Protector, or any of the other designations used for God in the Scriptures. Rather, the Creator here invokes His own name. It is spelled essentially Y-H-W-H. We don't really know what the vowels are. And it is a word so unique and held in such reverence by Hebrew scholars throughout history that it has been rendered essentially untranslatable and entirely unpronounceable. It is the name that God gave to Moses when they spoke at the burning bush. Many have translated that instance of the phrase as I am who I am. But that is only for lack of a better option. We know that it is related to words that mean to be, to exist, to come to pass, which are all appropriate thoughts to attach to the origin of all things. Hebrew scholars refer to this name as the Tetragrammaton, which sounds wonderful, but it just means something with four letters in Greek. Observant Jews refuse to say the name of God at all and simply refer to him as Hashem, or the name you know, like the Bruce Springsteen, but the like the name, all in caps, before and above and beyond all other names. When reading aloud in the synagogue, Jewish people use a pointer called a yad, and they follow along, actually this way, but they follow along so they don't lose their place. And when they come to this word, this set of symbols, they actually lift the pointer up off the paper and skip over it, for fear that they would transgress on the name of God by touching the writing of it as they moved the pointer across the page. When Hebrew scholars were preserving the Bible, they couldn't bring themselves, if they made a mistake on a page, they couldn't bring themselves to throw that page away if the name of God appeared anywhere on the page. So they had these huge stacks of mistaken or, you know, error-ridden manuscripts that they would just keep because they so revered the name of God that they couldn't destroy the paper once it had been written by the scribes. And they never say it aloud. Preferring to substitute when they're reading aloud, they just say Adonai, which is a description, really, of God rather than his name. And that's why we can't know for sure how to pronounce it, because Hebrew for many centuries was, the pronunciation was preserved only by reading the Torah in the synagogue, and since they would never say the name of God, we don't know how to say it. In English, as I said, we often say Yahweh or Jehovah, but basically it's just like a transliteration, and they just put some vowel, some representative vowels in there. Um, and that's all been done by relatively modern scholars. And I think that's all quite appropriate in a certain way, because this name of God is a designation solely of him. It refers to exactly one person. 
who has no equal, no peer, and no equivalent. He is a truly unique being. And so this untranslatable, unpronounceable word represents all that he is and all that is unique to him, creator, sustainer, author of ourselves and all the reality that we inhabit, the original, eternal, endlessly vast and powerful being. (coughs) All of this is contained in that simple word, I am the Lord, the name. (coughs) Excuse me. Throughout the Old Testament, as he speaks with mankind, God often sees fit to invoke his name. How many times have we read the phrase, I am the Lord, all capitals, your God? Each time he reminds us, I am Hashem, the name, the tetragrammaton, to men flinching, cowering, struck dumb with awe, and set aglow by the encounter, God identifies himself by name. And in the New Testament, Jesus Christ uses this very same word to seal that fate that would lead him to death on the cross. The religious leaders arrested him and charged him with blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God. And when they asked him, are you the Son of God? He said, in Greek we translate, I am, but he said the name. And they sentenced him to death for defiling the very name that we are discussing. That name is a symbol of this relationship that we're discussing in Psalm 123. At the end of verse 2, So our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. The psalmist, who evidently did know how to pronounce the name of God, because he uses it in a song of worship and confession, he first names God, Yahweh or Jehovah, and then he claims him, Eloheinu, our God, simply what it means. And in that naming and claiming, we see beautifully this perspective, this position or relationship that we've been talking about. He is himself with all that that entails. He is our God. Then in the final phrase of the first stanza, we get our first hint of trouble. Until he has mercy on us. The psalmist has just said that he and his people are approaching God with the best possible perspective, understanding and understanding in their hearts. So what do they need mercy for? Then the stanza breaks. Then the attention of the psalmist turns and he shifts from the first person descriptive, our eyes, to the second person imperative. Now he addresses the Lord Jehovah. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us, is the beginning of stanza two. Our soul is exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. That first line stands out poetically because it stands alone. As you may have noticed, Hebrew poetry often comes in pairs. Odd numbers stand out, especially one, because it becomes its own set. It's not even part of a larger set. You have three or five, it's a little less. It still stands out, but it doesn't stand out as much as one, because it's, it's just by itself. And then this particular construction, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, phrase, interjection, and then repeat the exact same phrase again actually has a specific meaning in Hebrew poetry. It marks a turning point. It breaks the poem into a new stanza. It's one of the ways that we know that there are two stanzas, and that's where the second one begins. The closest corollary I could think of would be from Shakespeare. 
the bard writes in blank verse, which means, among other things, that it doesn't rhyme. But if you remember any of your Shakespeare, some of the lines do rhyme. And they're always a line at the end of the scene. He comes to the end of the scene, he does a little couplet that rhymes, and then we know, it's like the curtain falling, you know, we know that this is the end of a scene and the beginning of a new scene. Likewise, when we see, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, we know that we're taking a sharp turn into new territory. A new stanza that will interact with the stanza that we have already read. In this case, it's a cry for mercy. A sharp contrast with stanza one that now will be elaborated upon in stanza two. We have a problem, the psalmist tells us, God, and the problem is us. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. In other words, we got it wrong. That question we've been talking about, that right perspective toward God that we need as the deepest foundation of our understanding about everything, we got it dead wrong. In fact, we have that perspective perfectly reversed. Instead of devoted humility, the psalmist says, we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. I looked up that word contempt, and it is not a pretty picture as opposed to stanza one. The Hebrew word, funnily enough, is booze. It comes from a root word that means to despise. And it suggests not just dismissiveness, but mockery. This is the word that Judah used after he was tricked by Tamar. If you'll remember, Tamar was the widow of one of Judah's sons. As Damon has mentioned, when the husband died and he didn't have an heir, the widow was meant to be married by the husband's brother to give uh, her an heir for the original husband. This is a way that Israel was preserved through the centuries and didn't just like shrink and have different families lost or whatever <coughs> in the ancient kingdom. So... Um, so Tamar's husband died, and Judah was supposed to give her uh, another of his sons to marry. And at first he did. Actually, he did it a few times. And every time the son died without producing an heir. So Judah decided, I'm not going to do that anymore. Every time I give you one of my sons to marry, he dies. I'm not going to have any heirs left of my own. Um, so Tamar tricks him by dressing up as a prostitute and placing herself in Judah's path when he's out of town. Great guy that he is, Judah gets her pregnant. But after the act, he has nothing to give her in payment. So he promises to send her an animal from his herd and gives her some of his valuables, like a deposit. When the servant gets there with the animal, there's no prostitute because she wasn't really a prostitute. And the men who live there say they don't even have a prostitute in that town. So Judah says in Genesis 38-23, sorry, Let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. That word laughing stop, stock, that's the word for contempt. It's mockery. The kind of feeling that the pagan guys of the town would have for the Jewish guy who couldn't figure out how to pay a prostitute. In Proverbs, the word is associated with pride and wickedness of the person doing the despising. And, in Job, and Job uses this word for God's attitude toward the status of earthly princes. It's just laughable. What? He's not interested in their aspirations of power. He's so far above them, it's not even worth 
mentioning. And then the final verse of stanza 2 in Psalm 123 gives us the whole picture in gory detail. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorn of those who are at ease with the contempt of the proud. The word scorn in Hebrew there basically means scoffing or taking amusement from mocking someone with utter derision. When Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem, you remember the city had been sacked and the walls had been broken down. They'd essentially been conquered. Nehemiah goes back and tries to convince the people who live in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and essentially to defy their overlords and reclaim their city for themselves. And the neighbors from the nearby towns, you know, the little sort of dukes or whatever, come by basically just to laugh at him. They don't attack him. They don't try to stop him. They just basically said, come on, give me a break. This is the image that the psalmist offers in contrast to stanza one. His people were supposed to come with devoted hearts, looking up eagerly to God from the midst of a loving relationship based on a right perspective about our relative positions in the universe. And they came to God with the scorn of those who are at ease, with the contempt of the proud. Is this not the way we see our culture today responding to God? Scoffing with such utter contempt that they cannot even entertain the idea of submission, let alone worship. But this, have we, as we have seen, is endemic in our species. The trend runs all the way back to the Garden of Eden. I heard a comedian named Simon Amstel on The Tonight Show, and he, his joke that he ended with just sort of perfectly wrapped up this concept. He looked around at the people and he said, the problem with society today is that we are all egomaniacs who believe that we are the center of the universe. And he did a brief count. He said, there's like 350 people in this room. And each one of you thinks that you are the important one even though all the evidence points to the fact that it's definitely me. And so, Psalm 123 reminds us that we too are susceptible to the utter arrogance that would cause us to get wrong. The one thing that Solomon warned us is the only thing that really matters. That is to love God and obey Him because we have applied ourselves to finding the right perspective by working to understand who he is and how we can look to him with like an organic tool rack waiting for the father mechanic to ask for the next wrench. Like the psalmist and his people. Like my... Yeah, but like my... The psalmist and his people, like my friend the apostate who dares to pass judgment on the extent of God's mercy, we too may lose sight of our right position in the universe. We may fall to this temptation to reverse the roles and see ourselves as the final arbiters of truth, of morality, even of the legitimacy of God's direct commandments. In fact, we probably will. Indeed, we already have. Every time we have chosen willful sin over humble submission. So like the men of Israel, making their way up to the Temple Mount from the Valley of Hinnom to repent, and sacrifice for the sins of their households, we must remind ourselves of the only right perspective from which to approach our Creator and our God. That is, with the understanding that He deserves our total attention and devotion. And with the understanding that He will continue 
as we know he will, to pour out the abundance of his mercy onto us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this psalm and this reminder that you are not simply a God, you are the Lord, the actual original. Thank you for the mercy that you pour out on us. Make us mindful of our need for that mercy and help us to strive always to place ourselves in the right perspective in relationship with you. Amen.